History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 84, The 10,000, a.k.a. Armenia 3. Just a heads up, we are covering a fairly unique story in Achaemenid history today with more detail than we normally have. As such, this includes references to sexual assault, mass suicide, and enslavement. Nothing is described graphically, but all of these topics come up, especially the issue of slavery. Two episodes back, we explored the aftermath of the Battle of Kunaxa. With Cyrus the Younger dead, Artaxerxes was secure on his throne, but had lots of cleanup to deal with. There were loyalists to reward, traitors to punish, a queen mother to seek gory vengeance, and a sizable army of Cyrus's supporters and mercenaries still out there in northern Babylonia. Most of this was dealt with in due order, but the remnant of Cyrus's army proved more complicated. Initially, they feared for their lives, but they were offered amnesty if they would agree to travel alongside Tissaphernes, now reinstated as satrap of Lydia and Otanes, the newly minted satrap of Armenia. This went smoothly for a few weeks, despite constant tension between the Greek mercenaries and the Persian loyalists, and eventually even the Persian subjects who had supported Cyrus. Then, seemingly out of the blue, General Clearchus and the other commanders of the Greek mercenary companies were captured and many of their officers were executed. Last time, we followed their story as they were taken back to Babylon in chains. Clearchus was nearly spared from the executioner, but Artaxerxes sided with his wife Statera over his mother, Parasadus, and had them all killed. From there, I explored some of the internal developments of the Persian Empire up to 397 BCE, including how Parasadus assassinated Statera with a poisoned dinner and Artaxerxes' subsequent wrath against his mother's household, ending with the queen's exile in Babylon. At the very end, I returned to Egypt, where the Libyan rebel Emerteus briefly set himself up as pharaoh, only to be deposed by Nefarud I, the first truly independent ruler since Cambyses conquered the kingdom of the two lands 126 years earlier. But now, we return to the plot thread I left dangling at the end of episode 82. In late 401 BCE, there were still over 10,000 Greek mercenaries sitting in their camp. Their highest-ranking officers were all either dead or imprisoned. And on the first night after they were betrayed by Artaios and the other ex-Cyrus partisans, they were left alone for reasons that even the mercenaries themselves never understood. This places us right at the beginning of Book 4 of Xenophon's Anabasis, and a story that I know many of you have been waiting for. I've been waiting for it too, but maybe not for the same reasons. I've known this was coming ever since I started the podcast, but was never quite sure how to address it. Today's narrative is located entirely within the borders of the Persian Empire, but is also almost entirely about a group of Greeks left to their own devices. It ultimately has very little bearing on Persian history but is fundamental to our understanding of the inner workings of the empire. Quite frankly, I wasn't very sure of whether or not to include it in the main show, or just make this a bonus episode on Patreon. As you can see, after three and a half years, I finally made up my mind. Back in 401 BC, in the Greek camp, 
the mercenaries were despondent. They assumed the Persian army would charge in at any moment and kill them all. Their leaders and organizers were gone. They were wildly outnumbered. They had no cavalry to try and compete with the Persians, and no time or provisions to fortify themselves for a siege. To put it mildly, they were screwed. But dawn came and went, and there was no attack. Still, the men were depressed. Xenophon records how most of them were simply brooding or sulking in silence. Nobody was eating, and many of the men were simply waiting in their tents alone. Xenophon himself was one of these men, lying awake, waiting for the end to come. But as the day wore on, it began to dawn on the young, adventurous Athenian that if death hadn't come for them yet, they might still have a chance, not to fight, but to escape. This is the moment where Xenophon inserts some obvious self-aggrandizement into his story. The Anabasis was initially published under a pseudonym, and not identified with Xenophon until after the author's death. As the man himself tells the story, Xenophon rushed out of his tent and gathered the remaining low-ranking officers in camp to get their support. He gave a rousing speech and single-handedly inspired them to snap out of their depression and prepare to run. The officers then gathered their men, and Xenophon gave yet another inspirational speech to rally the men before giving them orders to pack only what they could carry, abandon any pack animals that would slow them down, and get a brief nap before escaping at dawn. Xenophon's starring role in this is, let's say, dubious. It's more likely that several of the officers jointly got together and formulated a plan, even if it was at Xenophon's prompting. It's certainly unlikely that his words alone revived the army's spirits, but the Anabasis was published in the lifetime of many of his compatriots, so it's unlikely that he completely fabricated his role. And as the story progresses, it is clear that Xenophon took naturally to innovation and leadership. While the Greeks were packing up, a troop of 30 Persian horsemen rode up to the camp, enough to present a threat, but too few to look like a real attempt to wipe out the mercenaries. They were led by one of Cyrus the Younger's former officers named Mithridates. He claimed that he was there under false pretenses and offered to help the Greeks however he could. Initially, a group of Greek negotiators went out to talk with him, led by Kerasophus, the Spartan general sent with their fleet and the only Spartan commander left after the purge. One of these negotiators recognized one of the Persians at the meeting as one of Tissaphernes' cousins, and they called it off. They went back to Xenophon, and the small council of officers that had formed in the morning decided to halt all negotiations. Throughout the day, Persians kept coming to the camp with offers of amnesty, but only 21 of the mercenaries accepted, and there's no word on what happened to them. When the sun creeped over the horizon, the Greeks ate a small, pre-prepared breakfast and set out on foot with pack animals and camp followers walking in the middle of a tight formation. The mercenaries actually turned around and went back toward the estates of Parasadus, which they had passed earlier on their march, possibly hoping that the Queen Mother's staff would give them some aid. They were almost immediately attacked by the aforementioned Mithridates and 200 Persian soldiers, cavalry and infantry. Initially, they tried to hold their position and have the Peltasts return fire with arrows, javelins, and slings but the light troops were inside the formation and out of range. So Xenophon gave orders to charge the Persians. It was just a scare tactic, but it worked. The Persians retreated and the Greeks could continue marching south. They walked all day and did get to the village. Once there, many soldiers lapsed into depression once again. 
Xenophon attributes this to a failed raid in force by Karasophis to try and dissuade further Persian attacks. But it's easy to imagine other reasons. Even after trying to flee, they were assaulted. And now, they were headed in the wrong direction. Xenophon gives himself another motivational speech here, but this one is at least more believable because it makes some genuine rhetorical points that could restore some hope for warriors in their position. He pointed out that they were not being pursued by a full army, and addressed the shortcomings in their strategy, especially by moving a group of slingers from Rhodes outside the main formation where their long-range slings equipped with lead bullets could outrange the Persian missile troops. He also suggested that they take some of the draft horses being used as beasts of burden and equip them as cavalry. They waited a day to resupply before heading out again, only for Mithridates to arrive with a larger force, 1,000 horsemen, and 4,000 infantry. The mercenaries saw him approaching and made plans as he came. So when Mithridates was in range, a trumpet sounded and the Greeks charged with their new cavalry corps. Once again, the pursuer retreated, but this time the Greeks managed to kill some of his rear infantry. In a gruesome scene, the mercenaries disfigured the Persian dead, settling on terror tactics to try and keep the enemy away. After the skirmish, they headed north, hugging the banks of the Tigris River. Over the next two days, they made unhindered progress, passing through two ruined but ancient cities that Xenophon identifies as Larissa and Mespila. He gives vivid descriptions of both. Larissa was a city of clay bricks on a 20-foot-high terrace resting on stone retaining walls. It was located next to something Xenophon describes as a pyramid, where local villagers hid from the Greeks as they encamped. Mespila rested on a terrace of limestone, dotted with fossilized shells in 50 by 50 foot square. According to Xenophon, both were inhabited by Medes in ancient times, and were taken by Cyrus the Great only with the help of divine intervention. If you remember from episode 82, I talked about how Xenophon referenced a city called Kahai, which scholars identified as the Assyrian holy city of Asher. These descriptions made it easy for modern scholars to identify the better-known names of both sites described here. Larissa was Nimrud, a late Bronze Age capital of the Assyrian Empire. The pyramid outside of the city was a ziggurat temple built in the 9th century BCE by King Shalmaneser III. And Mespila was Nineveh, the final Assyrian capital destroyed in a brutal sack by the Babylonians and Medes 213 years before Xenophon's arrival. Where exactly Xenophon got his stories about Cyrus trying and failing to take the cities, or his names for them, is unknown. But the story of an Iranian king in ancient days besieging Assyrian capitals twice and failing bears a suspicious resemblance to Herodotus's story of the semi-legendary Median king Freortes. It seems like myths about the great leaders of the preceding two or three hundred years had already started to replace history by the late 5th century. This can also be seen in Theseus's stories about the Assyrian Empire and Cyrus the Great. Very little about them reflects anything to do with the actual history of the region, but both he and Xenophon would have heard their stories from contemporary Persians and Babylonians. Xenophon's story about the locals in Nimrud hiding in the ziggurat also makes it sound like they missed the opportunity to chat with actual Assyrians, who may have had a very different story to tell. From Nineveh, they kept heading north, but Tissaphernes finally caught up. This time he came in force, with his whole army, Orontes and his forces, and all the Persians from Cyrus the Younger who had joined them. 
Xenophon describes this force as exceedingly large, but it is entirely plausible that they outnumbered the 10,000 Greeks, especially given that Orontes' Armenians made up a significant chunk of the Battle of Canaxa. Since they were coming from the southwest, they were able to come up behind the Greeks and encircle them. Contrary to everything about the ideals they tended to espouse when fighting Persians, these Greeks had started to learn. Slowly but surely, they were getting better at fighting a Persian army in the plains of Mesopotamia. Instead of forming a solid phalanx of hoplites in one spot and a separate group of peltasts in another, they mixed the archers and slingers into the ranks in small groups. So when the Persians got close enough to hit the Greeks, they could return in kind. They had worked out a new tactic for dealing with the heavy concentration of missile fires in Persian armies, one better suited to the new landscape and being outnumbered than charging as fast as they could to break the Persians up. As the Persians retreated, we also start seeing the Greeks get crafty and more comfortable with the sort of survivalist tactics they would need to cross hostile territory. The archers started collecting Persian arrows off the ground to resupply, and practiced shooting them in wide arcs to cover more distance, mimicking the Persian archers they had been watching over the past six months. They passed through several villages on the road, and either raided them or purchased supplies. It's not clear which, since it doesn't really sound like there was enough time left in one day for raids, and Xenophon doesn't explain. They were able to buy grain, abundant thanks to the Tigris canals, and lead to cast into new bullets for their slingers. They rested for a day to take stock of the new equipment, and once again set out, just in time for Tissaphernes to come up behind them. As Xenophon says, it was then that the Greeks discovered that a square is a poor formation when the enemy is following. Trying to keep the phalanx in formation on the narrow rural roads of northern Assyria kept pushing them right out of formation, which made it difficult to maneuver. Rather than trying to assault them head-on, the Persians sent in small bands to skirmish. And at this point, I'm trying to figure out what Tissaphernes' plan was. He clearly wasn't ready to face the Greeks in open battle, so either he was trying to win a morale victory and get Xenophon to surrender, or he intended to pick them off until the mercenary army was small enough to face in the field. As both forces continued up the river, the Greeks had to invent new tactics or keep losing men in the rear because their formation was too damaged. They settled on something similar to a cross between the later Macedonian phalanx and a Roman maniple. The core of the army stayed in their formation to keep moving on the road, while six companies of 100 were given autonomy and distributed in clumps along the full column, with smaller units inside each company having further freedom of movement. As the road narrowed, or Tissaphernes attacked, these units would fall back, move off the path, or turn around as needed. By the end of this fifth day of their independent retreat, the mercenaries were nearing the northern border of modern Iraq, and not coincidentally, the northern frontier of Assyria, as both were marked by the natural boundary of the Zagros Mountains. But venturing into the foothills brought new problems. Tissaphernes' skirmishers caught up again, and when the Greeks were at the bottom of a hill, the Persians appeared at the top and were able to fire down on the mercenaries. The Greeks tried to press forward, but the Persians just pursued up the next hill and did it again. So they stopped on the third hill and moved all of their ranged units back to the rear of the army so they could defend each hilltop until the other mercenaries were already working their way up the next. Fortunately for them, they were moving into the mountains, so the hills kept getting higher and higher 
until the Greek missile troops could fire down on the Persians on the preceding hilltop. Only then did Tissaphernes call off the advance. From there, the mercenaries wandered into a clump of villages on the first mountainside, where they came in peace because what else could they do? Xenophon says they had to appoint eight surgeons to triage the wounded from the day's attacks. They stayed in the villages for three days, nursing the wounded and buying supplies. It turned out they were in luck. This was a supply depot for the local governor. Apparently not even a royal appointee, because their proper governor was killed at Kanaxa. From there, they went around the mountain and down into the next valley, passing several villages before Tissaphernes caught up again, and Xenophon says this was the day they realized just to camp at whatever village they found first, because Tissaphernes got ahead of them while too many of the Greeks were out of action, forcing them to stop and camp in the wilderness. This sparked a series of mad dashes from one day to the next, as each force tried to occupy an advantageous hillside. Tissaphernes trying to get into a good position to attack, and the Greeks were trying to and the Greeks were trying to pick a tall enough slope that the Persians would just go away. At one point, Tissaphernes watched in confusion as the Greeks ran back to a village they had already stopped in because it was a safer position. With a Persian army in the valley, the locals wouldn't trade, so the Greeks started raiding and pillaging as they went. To try and combat this, Tissaphernes started preemptively burning peasant villages, which had the undesirable effect of making the Greeks look like the more popular choice for the locals. So they opened their stores and started trading again. Eventually, the mercenaries made it far enough north that the confluence of the Tigris and Little Kabor rivers forced them to cross at a point with no bridge and deep water. They must have eaten well that night because they were forced to slaughter sheep and cattle they had collected in their raids to make rafts out of their skins. Tissaphernes and his men watched befuddled as the Greeks continued on into some of the most untamed territory the empire had to offer, and the next day turned around and gave up the chase. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages, as somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. 
10,000 Greek mercenaries had just passed into the territory of the Cardukians, a tribal mountain people that fiercely resisted every attempt the Persians had ever made to institute a central government. According to a story told by one of the prisoners slash recently enslaved people the Greeks had captured in the last few days, the last time a Persian army went to face the Cardukians, they all got lost in the mountains and were never seen again. Still, some local guides offered to show them the way, and what did the Greeks have to lose at this point? On their first night in Cardukian territory, the Greeks followed the road into a mountainside village. The inhabitants had seen this large army approaching and fled into the surrounding slopes, allowing the mercenaries to loot fresh supplies unhindered. They took foodstuffs, medical supplies, and material that could be used for repairing their equipment on the road, but they left the bulk of the valuables in place. In fact, Xenophon and the other commanders gave orders to treat the settlement as gently as possible, and sent men to try and make overtures of friendship to the locals. But unsurprisingly, nobody responded to the strange soldiers shouting in a foreign language. Still, they hoped that if they only took what they needed, the Cardukians would leave them be as common enemies of the great king. At dawn, the commanders further resolved to abandon everything but the necessities. Prisoners captured and enslaved from their recent battles and the villages on the Assyrian side of the Tigris were almost all released with the exception of guides and a few others with critical skills like doctors. The slowest and weakest pack animals were left with them, as was all of the war booty they had accumulated since departing Lydia. The commanders determined that this would both reduce the amount of food they had to carry and the speed of their travel through the mountains. From there, they got the men into formation and had the officers search their belongings to get rid of anything the soldiers had tried to keep against order, including, Xenophon says, a small number of attractive boys and women that some of the mercenaries had hoped to keep as slaves. For the next two days, they carried on, marching through a torrential storm as Xenophon commanded the rear guard in a running skirmish against the Cardukians, who evidently didn't care that the men who had just robbed them were also enemies of Persia. More familiar with the terrain, the Cardukians were able to get a warning to the villages ahead of the army, and ambushes were set up along the road with a large Cardukian force occupying the next mountaintop, surrounded by impassable slopes and cliffs. It took all of that night and most of the next day to dislodge these Cardukians and get to the village on the far side of that hill, abandoned in the face of a hostile Greek army. But when they arrived, the Greeks did resupply and held a makeshift funeral for the men they had lost in the night's battle. The next week brought more of the same, a constant skirmish and fighting for hilltop defenses, taking fire from huge Cardukian longbows with arrows too long to be fired back from the small Greek weapons, but long enough to be used as tiny javelins when the Greeks got close enough to their enemies. Only then did they reach the Botan River, which marked the border between Cardukian and Armenian territory. Unfortunately, their progress had been slow and loud, so a small army of cavalry and archers from the Armenian satrapy was already posted on the other side. They were forced to camp looking at the satrapal troops to their north and the Cardukian army to their south. In a stroke of luck, two young Greeks were out collecting kindling the next morning and found a narrow but dry rock outcrop above the water level that allowed a small number of Greeks to cross in full armor, along with their cavalry, and chase off the satrap's troops while the main force waded through chest-deep water. Even then, the rear guard of the river crossing had to fend off one final Cardukian attack before getting into Armenia. This is the last we'll see of the Cardukians. 
but they represent an important example of regional politics inside Achaemenid borders. They are not the only ones in this event either. Xenophon notes that a group of Chaldi mercenaries were on the Armenian side with the Armenian forces. In a few parts of the Zagros Mountains and Armenian highlands, which were particularly difficult for armies to navigate, some peoples managed to remain functionally independent, despite being surrounded by Achaemenid territory. These two northern examples are joined by several in the mountains between Susa and Parsa that would raid the settled communities of the home province and Elam, many of which were apparently the descendants of highland Elamites. Both the Chaldi and Kardukians are notable for other reasons as well. Looking back in time, the Chaldi appear to share their name with the chief god of ancient Urartu, the early Iron Age kingdom that ruled Anatolian Armenia and often fought with the Assyrians. They spoke a language unrelated to the others around them, predating the primacy of Armenian in the area. It's possible that these Chaldi, who appear in numerous classical sources, were the last holdouts of the Arartian culture. Looking forward in time, the Kardukians are often considered at least one part of the origin story for the modern Kurds. Various names for the people and places in this area around Lake Van, that sound similar to Kurd, have been used since 3000 BC, when Sumerian tablets referred to the land of Kardu. Some scholars even suggest that Kardu may have evolved into Erartu in the later Akkadian sources. Other examples include Kardukian, Korduene, Korduk, and Kurtian, with the name Kurd ultimately appearing around 300 CE. Obviously, some of these examples predate the presence of Iranian languages like Kurdish, but we know that Iranians began arriving and settling in the area as early as the Median Empire, and it would not be unusual for people to gradually take on the names from local geography. Once on the far side of the Botan, the Greeks resumed their march, once again in firmly imperial territory. They were soon reminded of that fact when they reached a palatial estate with a village surrounding a palace either for the governor of southern Armenia or for Orontes, the full satrap. It may have been the local governor since it was empty and there's no sign that the unnamed son of Tithrostes had been replaced yet. The villagers were able to flee with no guards left behind to hinder the Greeks as they resupplied. The mercenaries turned northwest, marching for five days into the territory of western Armenia. By then enough time had passed for all of the Persians to return home after Kunaxa, because they were intercepted by the regional governor Tirabazus. We've actually met him before. Tirabazus was one of Artaxerxes II's companions in the battle against Cyrus, and the man who pulled the king out of the fray when he was wounded. Rather than attacking the Greeks immediately, Tirabazus approached them with a few mounted guards and a translator to negotiate. He had probably heard about the fighting through Assyria, or even participated in it under Orontes and he had no interest in repeating the experience. He also recognized that as the Greeks neared the coast and got more comfortable with the terrain, they would be tempted to raid villages more aggressively for victims to enslave and plunder to take home. So Tirabazus offered a deal. He would provide the Greeks with safe passage through his land and allow them to collect provisions from his villages as needed, so long as they remained peaceful and left the people, buildings, and valuables unmolested. The Council of Greek Commanders accepted his terms, and the mercenaries were allowed to continue with Tirabazus and his troops following at a distance. The governor's leniency was probably motivated in part by the fact that the next settlement on the road was his own palace estate. 
the Greeks were allowed to take up residence in one of the two surrounding villages, and stayed there for several days on account of being snowed in. After weeks of retreats, it was December 401, and weather was going to be an ongoing problem. On the second night, some of the soldiers wandered off and investigated some of the vacant houses. But in the process, they lapsed into the typical ancient soldiers' habit of looting and burning the villages as they went. Xenophon says they were punished for it, but on the third night, some of the Greeks found and captured a Persian who had been collecting his own supplies for Tirabazus's army on suspicion of spying. The captive admitted that Tirabazus was planning to ambush them at the next pass. Now, there's two ways to interpret that. Either you go with Xenophon's ever-distrustful perspective, and this was the governor's plan all along, or you see the sequence of, we promise not to let our soldiers burn anything, oops, they burn some houses, Tirabazus is planning to ambush you, as direct cause and effect for failing to hold up their end of the bargain. This forced the Greeks to resume their march with speed, pushing through the heavy snow on the ground with insufficient provisions and no shelter from the winds that made it difficult to keep their fires going. It took four days to reach another village, apparently an Iranian settler community, because the Greek interpreter communicated in Persian and discovered that the inhabitants didn't know who they were. The mercenaries leveraged this and claimed they were soldiers from the great king on their way to the local governor when they met a group of women collecting water from a well outside of town. These women helpfully informed the Greeks that Tirabazus was one parasang away, about six kilometers or four miles. At this point, disease from months on the road, wounds, and winter conditions was starting to run rampant through the Greek camp, compounded by lack of supplies. Only the healthiest part of the army even reached that village. On top of it all, most of them were now wearing homemade shoes, more like slippers, since their original footwear had long since worn through. Walking for 3,000 plus miles will do that, and the winter terrain of the Anatolian Plateau was so desolate that Xenophon described it as a desert. The rear guard and more exhausted mercenaries just gave up and camped nearby even leaving some pack animals behind because they were equally exhausted. Some of the Greeks just started dying on the road, wandering off the path and sitting down never to get up. Xenophon led a raid on Terabazus' camp that night, trying to dissuade him from attacking the sick and wounded Greeks. Meanwhile, soldiers under Kerasophus the Spartan led the Greeks in the village in violently plundering their hosts. They captured and planned to enslave all of the inhabitants. Xenophon implies that they sexually assaulted the mayor's daughter, and descended into their homes, lest you start sympathizing with 10,000 mercenaries who were at their core soldiers of fortune out for personal enrichment and little else. I say they descended because these houses were dugouts, underground living spaces with only a roof at ground level, so deep that they used ladders to get in and out. The mercenaries stocked up on provisions and encountered barley wine for the first time, a beverage that Xenophon described as extremely strong but good once you got used to it, which, frankly, is still a good description of barley wine today. Once the village was under their control, Kerasophus sent men to escort the stragglers into the town's wall, and Xenophon sat down with the mayor to negotiate. He said that they would return his people to him and leave plenty of supplies behind in exchange for information and directions. With few real options, the mayor complied. The next day, Xenophon and the mayor went out on horseback to scout the road ahead. They passed through several villages without stopping, but Xenophon and the mayor got to visit several local Persian garrisons that were quartered there for the winter, 
Evidently, this local ruler didn't care too much about his subjects because he and Xenophon got along quite well, and he made a point to introduce his relatives in other towns. At the end of the day, they returned to the mayor's village, where Karasophis and the other officers were forcing the local Armenians to serve them dinner, miming their demands to communicate. The next day, the mayor explained that they were nearing the border of Armenia and the satrapy of Cappadocia, where they would soon enter the region known as Teokia, a place inhabited by a Kartveli tribe on the southern edge of the Caucasus Mountains. Xenophon exchanged his current horse for a younger and healthier local breed. Apparently, the Greek writer understood something about Iranian customs at this point, because he explained to the mayor that this old horse was a pack animal, not suited for riding, but would make an excellent sacrifice to Mithra, which is perfectly in line with ancient Iranian traditions. They spent a full week there before continuing their journey, with that mare as their guide to the border. It was a seven-day trek with the full sickly army, and by the time they reached the mountain pass, there was a local militia barring the way. But the mercenaries dislodged them with ease, even with an ever-shrinking number of healthy soldiers. Despite that, Xenophon bothers to include a whole war council scene where they all get to brag about their bravery and how eager the commanders were for the fight. Honestly, I think it's just because Karasophis insulted Athenians during the conversation. The mayor was allowed to return home as the Greeks continued into Teokian territory, but the problems continued. In antiquity, what is now western Georgia was a land of competing factions organized in tribal groups that often raided one another. To defend themselves, the Teokians lived in small but heavily fortified settlements, with some pastoralist herders traveling between several of these. These fortified towns were unappealing targets for the mercenaries, who didn't want to be delayed with a siege, but after five days, they were starting to run low on supplies, so they were forced to make an attempt on one built at the edge of a cliff, where a pastoralist tribe was camping along with their cattle. The mercenaries assaulted the gates in waves as the Teokians threw heavy stones down on them, going in small groups that could avoid falling rocks until the inhabitants ran out of ammunition. When they did run out of stones, the Greeks were horrified. The mercenaries had no interest in taking on more mouths to feed, but slave raids were common in the Western Caucasus, and the inhabitants committed mass suicide, throwing themselves off the cliffs rather than be taken captive. Once they breached the gates, a Greek officer even tried to stop a Teokian man from falling, only to be dragged over the edge himself. Still reeling from the event, the Greeks were able to resupply by taking the cattle, donkeys, and sheep from the herd. They turned west and entered an area called Calibia, working their way along the southern Caucasus near the borders of modern Armenia, Georgia, and Turkey, skirmishing frequently with local warriors dressed in linothorax armor and armed with short swords and spears. Xenophon describes how they would behead dead Greeks and prepare for battle with something similar to a song and dance. It's impossible for me not to picture this as a bizarre cross between classical Greek armament and a Maori haka. On one hand, there must have been some relief for the Greeks because people were starting to dress and fight in more familiar styles as they got closer to Greece. On the other... This was another region of fortified towns, so all the skirmishing didn't net them any loot or supplies. They managed to subsist on their captured suicide cattle until they reached the first true city they had seen in almost a year. Arriving at Gumnias in the spring of 400 BCE, 
The ruler of this city sent a guide to the mercenary army who, ex who explained that he would lead them to a mountain where they could see the Black Sea and plot their route to the coast. More skirmishing followed with the local communities, but the guide was honest, and when they reached the mountain, he even pointed them toward a hospitable village to camp at that night. The journey continued into the territory of the Macronians, and initially they were just as hostile as everyone else who had seen this big army of Greek marauders wandering through their territory. Once again, the slog through the Persian Empire was broken up with a small flicker of luck. One of the Athenian Peltasts in their company was actually a former slave, who knew the Macronian language, either from other enslaved people, or because he had been born in this area. This man was sent as a negotiator, and explained the situation honestly. They were retreating from a war against Artaxerxes and just wanted to go home, with no interest in harming the Macronians themselves. The Macronians agreed to escort the Greeks through their territory and supply them with provisions. Three days later, they passed over another river into the southern edge of Colchis. More famously, this was the most prosperous region of western Georgia at the time, but it extended its influence down into the northeastern corner of Anatolia. As usual, the new people didn't like the Greeks being in their territory, and a local army came up to meet them. This time, they fought another small battle. The Greeks were starting to recover by now, and almost certainly outnumbered the Colchians by a significant margin. As they neared the coast, they must have been relieved to find that local villages were not fortified, and thus free for the plundering, chasing the locals out to steal their beds at night. Xenophon comments on how the Greeks were very confused and debilitated, when they started eating honey from the local beehives, and falling violently ill with symptoms ranging from vomit, to apparent drunkenness, and even death. Today, we can identify it as mad honey, a toxic sweet produced by bees that feed on the nectar of poisonous plants. It was actually such a problem that it delayed their progress for four days. They marched for two more before reaching a city that might as well have been a gateway straight into heaven. It was Trapezus, the modern city of Trebizond, a Greek colony on the northeastern coast of Anatolia. They made offerings to Zeus and held celebratory games like a religious festival once they were welcomed into the city. The local government was happy to exchange access to their services for some mercenary work. The army was quartered in the Colchian villages outside of town, and sent to raid and negotiate with a number of hostile Colchian tribes as a way of rebuilding their lost war loot and paying for new supplies and luxuries in the Greek city. They stayed for a full month. All of this conflict with the local peoples of the Caucasus on the frontier of the Persian Empire provides another valuable insight for Achaemenid history. The conflicts of the 10,000 pass through regions where we see how the imperial fringe was only ever partly governed. So long as the right amount of tribute got to the satraps of Armenia and Cappadocia, government forces were content to leave local groups to their own devices and power struggles. We even see it in well-organized garrison towns, where they were fortified against the local threats of western Armenia, and full-blown port cities like Trapezus. In some of the frontiers, where settled satrapies like Armenia and Cappadocia, or Sogdia and Chorasmia, gave way to loosely controlled vassals in the Caucasus or the Steppe, there was a constant tide of low-level endemic warfare. Though it was a Greek city, Trapezus was still at the fringe of the Greek world, and there were never going to be enough ships in the harbor to transport the whole mercenary force. Even after their losses, the famed 10,000 of Xenophon's Anabasis still probably numbered around 9,000, give or take. 
plus servants, enslaved captives, and camp followers they had started accumulating again. However, access to the Greek world at least allowed them to get some news, even if it was highly delayed in a backwater like Trapezus. There were rumors of a Spartan war fleet on the Hellespont, and internal strife in the Odrysian royal family of Thrace. As their sole remaining Spartan commissioned officer, Kerasophus and some of his men hired a ship from Trapezus to take them to Byzantium, where they would try and secure transportation for the whole army back to Europe. The political situation was still uncertain, so out of an abundance of caution, the rest of the mercenaries resolved to continue marching along the Pontic coast of Anatolia in search of ships for their own, with plans to rendezvous along the way. Unbeknownst to all of them, they were marching right back into the war they were trying to escape. But that's for next time. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 